Are you glad to be part of the family of God? Praise the Lord. We're going to uh, continue today in a series of looking at the tests of life, which are found in the uh, first letter that John wrote. But uh, before we get, before we read the passage, uh, I have uh, some slides. See if we'll be able to get them up here. All right, I got a thumbs up. Okay, what, what are these people doing? Bird watching, good, good. Sometimes we see them as we, uh, we uh, go around hiking or bike riding, and you wonder what people are looking at. Well, they're looking at birds. Now, it's, uh, I'm going to make a, reveal a secret here in that there are bird watchers among us. <laughs> Something we discovered, we had the Wang family over uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, they told us about a, a story <coughs> of uh, being in uh, Legoland and a, uh, a bird landed next to them. Can we look at the next, next slide here? And uh, uh, Tyus was at the time maybe seven years old or so, and uh, he was able to identify exactly what species that bird was. How many of you can do that? Right, well, how do you go about determining what species of bird you're looking at? And uh, the answer is you're looking for something that you might call defining characteristics. Defining characteristic. A defining characteristic is a characteristic that is common for that species. So every, every creature of that species is going to have this defining characteristic. And it's ideally something that differentiates them from other species. Other species would not have that characteristic. So how would you go about applying defining characteristics to determine what this is? All right, well, so... I guess the first thing is you need to identify that this is a hawk. All right? and I, I'm not going to tell you how you identify that. I'm not a bird watcher myself. So that kind of helps you a little bit. Then if you go to the next slide, you may happen to know that there's two kinds of hawks. There is the buteo hawk and the acceptor hawk. And they're different from each other. One has this, uh, at least to me, the most obvious difference. One has this fan-like tail. I'm going to make a bird watcher out of all of you by the end of the day. <laughs> and the other has this narrower tail, or straight tail. So go back to the picture above. Tell me, is this a buteo hawk or an acceptor hawk? Acceptor. Good. You see? You know, you guys get it. All right. So the next thing that might help you go down two slides is uh, you may happen to know, if, if, if you're a person who's interested in birds in this area, that there's only two kinds of acceptor hawks which are common to this area. And those are, I guess I don't have the, the woods. Do I have the woods? All right, sorry. Uh, I think one is a sharp, uh, sharp shin hawk. That's the one on the top. And one is the cooper hawk, right? That's the one on the bottom. Now, you might look at those and wonder, what's the difference? <laughs> and I did too when I first stared at them, which is... One of the amazing things that, you know, Tyus as a seven-year-old boy was able to discern between these two hawks, uh, probably the most obvious difference to me is the relative size of the head to the body. Look at the relative size. You'll see that the one at the top has a smaller head compared to the body, compared to the one on the bottom, right? So let's go ahead. So the one at the top, that's the sharp chin. One at the bottom is the uh, cooper 
Park. All right, let's go back to the picture, see if people can tell which one this is. All right. Go down a couple slides again, give people another shot. Now, one of the things you'll notice is that, you know, the real bird you see never looks quite like the ones in the picture, right? You know, it's part of, part of life. You know, you'll see a picture of what a man looks like and what a woman looks like. You know, none of us really looks like those pictures, right? You know, we're also a little bit different. Yes, Don? I'm going to say that's a Cooper. Yeah. Right. That's good. It's, it's the Cooper hawk. And uh, I, the way to tell really is probably the size of the head. Now, it look, one of the reasons it looks different, as I understand, is it's a juvenile, which makes the skin a little browner. So the color's off, but the, the ratio of the size is correct. There may have been other signs, but uh, what we want to talk about today is what we might call a defining characteristic of a Christian. How do you tell if somebody is a Christian? Right, we've been, ta- been talking about that for some time. <clears throat> today we will see one of the main, if not the main, defining characteristic of a Christian. With that, let's go ahead and read 1 John chapter 3. And starting at verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not Love, his brother, abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So first we will notice, we're told here, how to tell a child of God from a child of the devil, right? It says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. We are not told how someone becomes a child of God, right? We're told how you can tell one from the other. Now, people are probably highly offended that I would say something like a child of the devil. But that's what this passage says. But what it really says is that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are children of God because they, are, they have been adopted into God's family. God has placed his nature into them and they're living a life that is more or less consistent with God's will for them. The other kind of people are children of the devil by virtue 
that they've inherited the sinful nature of their parents. And the fact, if you go back all the way from the beginning, their parents made a choice of following the devil instead of following God. Right? That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They made a choice. Instead of believing God and following him, they chose to believe the devil and follow him. So as people today are still following in the same footsteps, the Bible calls them the children of the devil. They're the result of the devil's work. Not nice, but true. That's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> now we're given the defining characteristic between the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So there's two here. We talked about one last time, and that is practicing righteousness. We mentioned how because as a believer you receive a righteous nature from God, you have a desire to do righteous things. We said you have an appetite for righteousness. And that's one thing that distinguishes a child of God from a child of the devil, an appetite for righteousness. The other that is the focus of this message is that of love. A believer, a child of God, loves his brother. Now this is not something that John came up with. It's what Jesus said. And that's one of the reasons he can say, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. This is the message, the original message that the apostles carried to every believer that they should love one another. And that was following Jesus' command in John 13. Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. And the setting here is, of course, the Last Supper. This is the last time Jesus was with his disciples before the cross. And he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. And he, he added this, by this, by the fact that you love one another, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus himself said, this will be the defining characteristic of a child of God that they love one another. We're singing the song, I am so glad that I'm part of the family of God. And that's what we are. We're all part of the family of God. And as being members of the same family, we should all have love for one another. It's one of the wonderful things God does when he creates a family. Bring a, a man and a woman together. They become a husband, husband and a wife. They should be loving one another. Then they have children. And God gives you a love in your heart for your children. And so you have this circle of love. That's what a family is. And we should all be part of the family of God. There should be love between the members of the family of God. <clears throat> now, we have for us, in the rest of the passage we just read, read, a description of the characteristics. I may have told you, well, the way you tell uh, an, uh, a buteo hawk from a... Uh, from an acceptor hawk, as one has a you know, wider tail than the other. But it would help you if I can give you more description. Now, I, I was able to show you a picture, and a picture is worth a thousand words, they say. Here we just have words, but, but uh, the Lord is giving us here a description of what this characteristic looks like, the characteristic of love. And he starts with the counter, with the counterexample, with Cain. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. So since we're talking about Cain, I feel it's only fair we go to the original source of information. 
Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 4. If not, we'll have the text up here for you. Genesis 4, chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. Now, for those who, who may not know, and I think everybody here knows, uh, Cain was uh, the firstborn of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were the two people that God created, and, uh, and they had a child born named Cain, and uh, then after that they had a child born named Abel. So you know how, how, how children are different. And uh, it's often you find that the firstborn often to, tends to be the most self-centered one. Because for some period of time, his old mommy and daddy have. So they can really pour all their love upon him, and this baby believes that he is the center of the universe. And the second one comes along, and, uh, you know, he has the reality. It's not just him, it's him and his brother, right? So you immediately learn as a second one that you are not the only person in the world because your brother will make sure you realize that you're not alone in the universe. And uh, there's others who were here before you. But so that was Cain and Abel. And we're told this in verse 3, Genesis 4. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So there was an offering. He wanted to offer something to God. And he came and he offered the fruit of the ground, vegetables. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, people often wonder, why is it that God accepted the offering of Abel, but not of Cain? And uh, the strong suggestion of the scripture is that God told them what he wanted. Right? God somehow revealed to them, revealed to Adam and Eve, and Abel listened to what God said. He said, okay, God, you want an animal offering, I will bring you an animal offering. And Cain said, you know, God, you really should see these vegetables I've grown in my garden. You know, this is better than any animal I can bring you. And and it, uh, it says that God accepted what Abel brought, right? Abel brought what God asked for. He didn't accept what Cain brought. Cain brought what he wanted to bring, not what God asked for. Verse 6. So the Lord... I'm sorry. Yeah, did I skip verse 5? But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance... Fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? M- meaning, you know, if he chose to do the right thing, bring to God what he wanted, God would have accepted him. God had nothing against Cain. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The oldest son, the firstborn, murdered the second son of the same family. Murder. What is murder? Uh, the dictionary defines murder as the act of unlawfully killing a human being with premeditated malice by a person 
of sound mind. This wasn't an emotional moment. It's not that they happened to be working together at the field, and uh, for some reason, Cain kind of lost it. You know, Abel, you know, stepped on his toe or something, and Cain just lost control for a few minutes, and in those few minutes, he killed Abel. This was a premeditated act. Cain thought about it, and in what we would call a sound mind, he decided, I'm going to kill my brother. Why? Well, John answered it for us. He asked, um, And why did he murder him? Because his or Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. Because his works, Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. Uh, this is the way I understand it. Abel what, was doing what is right. His parents told him what to do. He did it. God told him what to do. He did it. He was making good choices. He was doing the right thing. And Cain was not. Cain was doing his own thing. And seeing Abel doing the right thing bothered him because it convicted him of sin. It showed him that what he was doing was wrong. And it bothered him so much day after day to see his brother doing what was right. And he was doing what was wrong that eventually he said, you know, I'm, I would be happier if my brother didn't exist. Now, he didn't think about how Abel felt about the situation. Right? He was just thinking about what he felt. You know, I would be a happier man if this brother of mine did not exist. And I don't know how long he was thinking about that. It's interesting that God says that sin is lying at the door. God could see this thing in his heart. And eventually, he went for it. He, he murdered his own brother. Now, remember here, <clears throat> John is describing for us this characteristic of not loving your brother. Love could perhaps be defined best this way, to put the needs or the happiness of other of another before your own. Right? Loving somebody is really seeking their good, wanting to do something that would make them happy, that would be would be good for them. Hate or unlove is putting yourself before another. Right? That's that's all Cain he just put himself first. I'm an, I'm in an unhappy man to see my brother doing what he's doing. I will make myself happier by getting rid of my brother. And what, it, what this shows us is that when we're talking about not loving someone, it will eventually become murder. Right? That's how God sees it. Now, we have you know, policemen in our country, praise the Lord, and uh, that keeps people generally from murdering one another. Right? We have this restraint in our society but if allowed to manifest itself to the full, our preoccupation with self, raising self above the need of other, would result in people killing one another. And if you look at history and you, see, you look at the news and you see all the wars and all the killing and all the crime that's happening in this world, it's all because of that one reason of putting ourselves above our brother. And that's what this world is like. Now, there's a change that happens for believers, and that's spoken of in verse 13 and 14. It says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And uh, I don't know if you can remember what it was like 
before you were a Christian, maybe you came to church, and uh, you were really annoyed by everybody here. <laughs> you know, you didn't like people, maybe because they were doing all these right things, and you were not doing all these right things. And something wonderful happens to you when you're saved, and that is that you actually start loving the people <laughs> you meet at church. And uh, the scripture talk about it uh, in this way. It says in Second uh, Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Because as I live godly, I'm doing to other people the same thing Abel did to Cain. Right? By my righteous living, I'm showing that they are unrighteous. And people don't like that. So the more godly I live, the more people who are unbelievers are not going to like having me around. Right? I'm rubbing them the wrong way. I'm, I'm you know, paying my taxes. I'm, I'm you know, refusing to lie. I'm saying the truth. I'm not allowing them to get away with what they want to do. But that changes. So that's why we don't like believers before we're saved. But once we're saved, all of a sudden we love righteousness. And we see somebody doing something that is right. And like, this is beautiful. You know, I wish I was more like that. Right? Instead of, of it rubbing you the wrong way, all of a sudden it's something that you desire. Right? And that's change in you, going from, you know, I can't stand these people around here, I can't wait for it to be 12 o'clock so I can leave. All of a sudden, you know, I, I enjoy being around believers. Right? That transition is evidence that you pass from death into life. Right? You have a new nature inside of you. God has changed you. Okay, so now we have for us the example of love. We've seen the example of unlove. That was in Cain. And now we have for us the example of love, and that is Jesus. Right? By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And one of the reasons I like coming to the breaking of bread at 9 o'clock is that's a topic. So, you know, I feel like I shouldn't even be talking about it. But we come here every morning at 9 o'clock to worship the Lord because of his love for us. Right? We understand that uh, he saw us as sinners destined to hell. And he left his throne in heaven, came into this world as a baby, grew up into a man, always lived righteously. And in spite of that, he was nailed to a cross and left to die. And we sing this sometime. What led thy son, O God, to leave thy throne on high, to shed his precious blood, to suffer and to die? Why? Why did you do that? And the answer is, it was love, unbounded love, to us, led him to die and suffered us. It was his love for you and for me that led him to the cross. And that is how we know love. We know love by seeing his example of laying down his life for us. And then we have the commandment, right, or the description for us as believers, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does it mean? I mean, Jesus already died on the cross for your sins. What else can I do for you? Well, a lot. Right? So Jesus died to save you from hell, and he met all your spiritual needs, 
but you may have lots of other needs that I can help you with. And what it's telling us is that I should be willing to lay down my life, give up my things, in order for you to have what you need. That's love, right? Love is putting another first, thinking of another first. Now, we're given an example here. What does it mean? <clears throat> and it says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So it clarifies what kind of love it is. Well, if you have some goods of this world, and yes, it can mean you know, money, it can mean having a house, it can mean having a car, and you see, you see your brother in need, what would be the natural response? Matt, if you uh, were driving down the street and uh, you saw your brother, and I'm talking about your earthly physical brother, and uh, you know, his, his car must have had trouble, and there he is by the side of the street, you know, waving his hand for people to pass, and there his own brother, flesh and blood, is driving by him, you know, would you just keep driving on or would you stop? You'd stop because it's your brother and he clearly needs help. And that's what we should be doing as being part of the family of God. Whenever we come across a brother in need, whatever it is, if we can provide for it, if we have this world's good, whatever it is you need, we should be meeting that need, right? That's, that should be the natural love as being a member of the family of God. Now, Jesus predicted it. We don't often think about this passage in this way. In uh, Mark chapter 10, I don't know if you remember uh, the passage, but this is after uh, Jesus met the rich young ruler, and he told him, well, you know, if you leave all, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and come follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven. And uh, Peter was listening, always, you know, somebody else's conversation, but he says, Lord, we have left all, what will we have? Right? He wanted to know, what, what are we going to get in return for becoming Christians, for following you? And this was Jesus' answer. Mark 10:29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. You know what that means? What is my reward for becoming a Christian? It's you guys. <laughs> right? You're my family. I, I gave up when I became a believer. Uh, my grandfather disowned me. Our relationship with a lot of members of my family became more strained. And, uh, you know, there's other ways in which I may have suffered. And God rewarded me with you guys. Right? I have a much bigger family. And you know what? It's not just you guys in this church. It's every child of God on the face of the earth is now a brother and a sister. Or you could be a mother and a father. If you prefer. If you feel old enough to deserve that. Okay? So that's, that's the gift and you know what? When I get you as my brother and sister, it means all of a sudden your house or your car or money or whatever you have is mine too, right? I mean, you wouldn't deny your own brother, your own sister, something that you have and you can give to them. 
Well, it should be the same toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Whatever I have is yours. Now, we have evidence of that happening uh, in the early church. <clears throat> in uh, Acts chapter 2, you may remember there was a great sermon that Peter preached. And uh, verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is the beginning of the church. 3,000 new believers. What did they do? We'll skip a couple of verses to verse 44. It says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They, they literally practiced it. Right? They shared. You know, come live with me in my house. You can eat my food. You know, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And it was something that in the early church needed because people were being disowned by their family. All of a sudden, you had no home to go to. You lost your job. So you needed the support of other believers. Now, it's not just the Bible that records this. And uh, we, we also see it in uh, history. So some of you may be aware that there's these people called the church fathers. And it doesn't mean that you know, they somehow were the source of the church, but there were people very long ago that... that that were somehow uh, became notorious Christians and uh, wrote a lot. And so we look at the writings as the writings of the church fathers, the early church fathers. And uh, you could look, uh, look to see what they said. Uh, Justin Martyr was one of them, Justin Martyr, sketched Christian love this way. We, who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions, more than anything else, right? And that's what people do today. We're all after getting more and more stuff. I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Shouldn't have said that. Uh, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possession more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. This is a description, historical description of what was going on. Clement, another church father, describing the person who has come to know God, wrote, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain, and if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his poverty, he does not complain. When a devastating plague swept across the ancient world in the third century, Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick. There's a plague going on now, as I understand it. There's an Ebola outbreak in um, West Africa. And often people will be quarantined. They'll be told, you have to live in this village. This is where the sick people are. <laughs> we don't want you among the rest of us spreading your disease. And uh, there was a plague in the ancient world. And it says Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick 
which they did at the risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, pagans were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets even before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. So Christians were willing to expose themselves to the diseases of other members in the family of God. You were sick, you know, I may be sick and die, but I'm going to take care of you if I can. It's not surprising that, it say, that is said, this was said by uh, the Romans. Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how they love one another. That's, that was the testimony of the early church. Now, if we look at the end of the passage we read in Acts chapter 2, it closed with, uh, with this phrase, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Why were people saved on a daily basis? Why was it that the church was able to spread in one generation from a small community in Jerusalem to cover the known world of that day? The secret was love. Jesus says, by this will people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The testimony of the early church was the love between the believers And that was the power of the gospel. That's why the gospel spread, because there was real, genuine evidence of the salvation of God in the lives of the believer through their love for one another. Okay, we have, uh, in closing here, an exhortation in 1 John. He says to us in verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever We ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So John is telling us not to love one another in word, or in tongue. The easiest way to show love to someone is to say, I love you. And you can add, no, I really, really love you. Now, how hard was it for me to say? Not so hard. Now, what, what John says, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, the word indeed, I used to think of like really, really, indeed. I love you indeed. <laughs> But it actually is two words. Indeed, in action. Love must be in action. And uh, when, when, uh, one of the reasons I'm here preaching, believe it or not, is because of a love <laughs> that was shown by members of this church to my wife, before she was my wife, before she even knew me. And uh, she came visiting. She was looking for a church. She had some friends in Alaska. And uh, they recommended a uh, she contacted uh, Matt Clark and uh, Charlie Epps. And, uh, you know, she did. They invited her to come out. 
to church. So she came to church and, uh, you know, people invited her for dinner. Now, that was already love, right? You know, it's more than saying I love you. I'll come over after church to my house, I'll feed you food. Right? It actually will cost me something. Now, these people didn't know what they were bargaining for because uh, while they were feeding my wife, somebody came and egged her cup. So now they have a guest, <coughs> you know, and uh, she walks out to her car and it has, you know, dried egg all over it. Every, anybody knows what egging means? Right? Take a, a raw egg and you throw it on somebody, somebody's car. So, you know, what did they do? You know, they got out, you know, the soap and water and they washed my wife's car. And at first my wife thought, these people are kind of strange. Why are they inviting me for dinner? You know, they must be really desperate for people to come to their church. So that's why they're doing it. But, you know, once, you know, she saw them on their, you know, hands and knees cleaning her car, she was like, no, this is real love. This is the church I want to go to. Right? Evidence of love. Um, I, my uh, first evidence of really seeing the love of the saints was when Sharon and I moved for our first time. We've saw it since then consecutively with every move. It's remained consistent. But our first move, you know, we told people we're moving, please come and help. You know, we were trying to be as prepared as we could for people to come. Uh, and, you know, people were there before the right time. And uh, they showed up in droves, <laughs> you know, cars and trucks. We were loaded. They took our, my entire household, which wasn't as large granted as it is today, loaded it under cars and trucks. In one ride, they took everything, they put it into our new place, and we were done moving, I don't know, by 10 o'clock, 10.30. We promised people lunch, but it was too early. <laughs> so we tried to get him to stick around for the lunch, but there again, you know, it was love indeed by action, right? Not in words. Um, Again, you know, I have you know, many, many other experiences. We had experienced the love of the saints, but in, I'm encouraged recently. We've seen the young people in our church, the Ask Us group, really you know, going out of their way, trying to find a way of showing love to people. Uh, Jake was just here announcing a skit night, uh, movie night. All these things take a lot of work. And uh, the young people are seeking to bless us, <laughs> show us love indeed in action evidence of true love. Now, it's interesting to me, John starts by saying, well, if you're a real believer, you will love one another. And then he goes on and he exhorts us to love one another. And like, wait a second, if I'm a believer, don't I love people automatically? You're just wasting words here, John. You don't have to tell me to love one another. But, uh, you know, what's the truth? First uh, Peter 2.22, you know, kind of reminds me of the same thing. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren. What he's saying is, you guys love the brethren. And because of that, what do I want you to do? Love one another fervently with a pure heart. What he's saying is, there's always room to improve. Right? We're, you know, yes, we're saved, we're children of God. We still have this sinful flesh you know, that uh, often is anything but love. And it's part of our growth process as Christians to learn to love one another more. And so as much as we love one another here at Calvary Bible Chapel, there's room for improvement. 
And uh, it's something that the Lord has challenged me as I was preparing for this message. That's the advantage of being the preacher. You know, the Lord always hits you first with the word. And, uh, you know, I need to be getting to know the saints. You know, how do you know that your brother has a need? You know, if you keep him at an arm's length and you say, you know, how are things going? You know, at church. And they're like, oh yeah, everything is fine. All right, good, everything is fine here too. I mean, if that's the limitation of your interaction with other believers, you will probably not know what their needs are. You have to kind of get closer, (laughs) right? If you really want to find what people need. And that's something I need to do. And, uh, and, then, and then meet those needs. Then, then show love to you, practical love. Okay. Finally, we have the benefits of love for us uh, in the remaining passage. And there's two benefits here. Uh, the first one is assurance. Remember, we were talking about defining characteristics. What is a defining characteristic of a child of God? Well, love. Love to one another. That shows you're a believer. Well, so if you have this love in you and you're exercising it, well, it's a great source of assurance that you are a child of God, right? And if you don't, then it leaves you wondering. Right? So the first benefit of practicing this kind of love is assurance, confidence in your relationship with God. Uh, the other benefit, uh, it says here, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. We, we often love to see answered prayer. We love it when we ask for something and God answers our prayers. And uh, I think the reason this doesn't happen as much as we like it to happen is because our prayers are too often self-centered. Lord, you know, if I win the lottery, you know, <laughs> I'll give you half. Well, who am I thinking about when I'm praying a prayer like that? I'm thinking of me. I'm advancing myself. Oh, Lord, you know, heal me of my sickness. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this trouble. And the Lord, you know, will, will, will sometimes answer those prayers. But if you look at places where God promises answers of prayers in the Scripture, which we'll have one in, later on in First John, we saw it in James, there are always prayers that are oriented toward others. Right? If I'm just praying for myself... I'm not really, or I may not be part of what God really wants to accomplish. If I'm praying for the saints, if my prayer are part of this love for the saints, I come and I recognize that you as a brother has this special need, and I go on my knees before the Lord, and I ask the Lord to meet that need, the Lord loves to answer those kind of prayers, because that's love in action. So if you want to see a greater evidence of the power of God in your life, get with the program and love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for making us all parts of the family of God. Lord, we praise your name for giving us such a gift for becoming Christians, giving us a family here on earth composed of the entire body of Christ. Lord, help us as you exhort us in this passage to love one another more and more, that there may be in us this testimony, as the Romans said of the ancient church, see how they love one another, and that that might become the attraction of Christ for the world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.